Well, we are resuming our questions. We barely got into them last time. And just a recap on everything. Uh, we have read a document, uh, actually a story, called Can Forgiveness Play a Role in Criminal Justice? The story of a young man who killed his girlfriend and how, his, how the two families came together in forgiveness and att attempting to find the best path for Connor. Uh, they developed this restorative justice um, le legal way of doing things. Uh, it is more experientially based than it is really legal based. And of course there was a lot of skepticism, as you remember, uh, about whether they could even do this in a law and order society and how this would be received by the public. And they went ahead with it. And uh, we discussed uh, question one, but I thought it would be good to try to recap question one. Because our, our real goal in this is to ask, what, <coughs> what do, do the two models look like in real life? Particularly the model that we have espoused this year, uh, you could call it healing trust model. Uh, you could call it uh, experiential model. Uh, you could, there's a, there's a, just a lot of different names you could use for it. So what is what is well, how does this relate to our personal life? How does it look in action? So that's our overall question that we're looking at. And the first question that we dealt with last time is what elements in the story are experiential? and related to a trust healing model. I'd like to take that to the next level. What elements would help us in understanding the difference between a legal process and an experiential one? And the first one I wrote down is based on something I read on, unfortunately I didn't put these pages. My <laughs> <Hmm. laughs> most often uh, downfall. Uh, so page one, two, the third page, but it'd be the sixth. No. Um, maybe yeah, the sixth page. What's the, what's the it's first line on the top of the page? Them, how are you standing? Okay. And uh, there's a bold type down in tr just halfway down or a little after, early in 2011. There's a line I highlighted here in the first, actually, zero paragraph. Anger is killing me, but it motivates my work. Mm. That, really, that line really stands mm. out because anger, wrath, is the basis of the legal model, really. Mm. We haven't gotten into that this year. I hope to get into it next year, and I'm not, we're not going to get into it um, looking at Ellen White because I find it easier actually to deal with that topic in the Bible. Uh, it, it becomes very clear when you deal with it in the Bible. So next year uh, we'll be getting into God's wrath and how, how that underlies all these issues. Because if, if God is angry, then he needs to be appeased. And appeasement can take place in a legal setting very nicely. And in an experiential setting, it's a little hazy how you can appease anger. Um, 
I think in an experiential setting, we usually try to talk it out. We usually try to come to some kind of terms. We usually offer some kind of reparation, like um, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do to help make things better because of what I've done. But that, of course, is predicated on the person's willingness who did, who did the vile thing, <laughs> their willingness to admit it and to own it and to accept full responsibility for it. If it, the legal model, and I think this is what gave rise to the legal model, it's assumed that the guilty party is not going to admit their guilt. They're going to have to be found guilty before they admit their guilt. And even then they may never admit it. They may claim innocence. So, so those are some things, some issues to, to think about. Um, and of course, what I've already said uh, is a very important aspect. Uh, the restorative justice um, method, I, I hate to use the word method, but I don't know what else to use. Uh, the restorative justice process maybe would be better. Uh, uh, actually allows and even forces people, not in a forceful way, but it, but it puts them where they can and most likely will um, from they move the, it moves them from refusal to admit their guilt to full ownership of it. You saw that process with Connor. At some point, um, in fact, there's there's a very telling statement uh, in the la next to the last page. Um, next to the last paragraph on that page. With the Grosmer's forgiveness, he told me, I could accept the responsibility and not be condemned. Because they, they take away the condemnation, then you don't have that fear of trying to fight back and avoid condemnation. So then you can then the, the ball is in your park and you have to play. I mean, if you're left with it. Uh, forgiveness, as this author says, doesn't make him any less guilty and it doesn't absolve him of what he did. But in refusing to become Connor's enemy, the Grosmers deprived him of a certain kind of refuge, of feeling abandoned and hated, and placed the reckoning for the crime squarely in his hands. So it seems that in the legal process, one can hide behind that process and actually use it to enhance their victim status and call sympathy to themselves. Whereas in a restorative justice process, uh, there's no such refuge. You're faced with yourself and only yourself. Anything else that comes to mind? See, I, what has happened here, I think, is what is supposed to happen to Christian believers at the foot of the cross. When we see Christ actually dying the consequences of sin, but no condemnation, just love and truth there, it leaves us with ourselves. I think that's the experience the cross is supposed to bring to us. Our only enemy is within ourselves, as opposed to creating this God that's against us, kind of. Yeah.
Yeah. Very good. And and that's the refuge, you see, that drives the entire legal process. And I'm talking now in terms of theology. Um, there's some other things that drive the legal process outside of theology. But once you have an angry God who is going to condemn you, uh, you need a legal way of assuring yourself that he's not going to get you. Uh, and and if a person is afraid enough of being lost, the legal model is very good news. And, and we need to keep that in mind because when we dialogue with people who, who have espoused that other model, um, it's important that we address their fear uh, and not pull the rug out from under them and, and abruptly show them their condemnation because they're still afraid. They haven't, they haven't changed gods at that point. We have to make sure that our transition is gentle. There was a small thing in this story um, that kind of stood out to me. I'm not sure where it was, but this is when the circle was just going to meet. Uh, and I don't even remember the person who was conducting the group, uh, but she allowed Connor to hug his mother. Mm-hmm. It's on page seven which go three pieces of paper over and it's it's down the day of the conference June 22 was hot and humid and Kate and Julie rose from their chairs at Connor this is the second paragraph there or the second paragraph after the bold type yeah uh, and I guess it's the next sentence that I mean makes me think of this well both one and two numbers one and two which is jail policy is that there be no physical contact between inmates and visitors. Mm-hmm. He had been in jail for 15 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, you probably don't have to be a psych major to know that physical contact is very important to mm-hmm. healthy thinking. Uh, and it is, I find it interesting that in the legal model, once you have been sentenced and put in prison, you are effectively uh, isolated mm-hmm. from compassion. Uh, and in fact, the majority of the time, the only physical contact you're going to get in prison is violence or rape, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is not that conducive to healing or correction. Yeah. There really is very little, if any, in the legal system that would allow for a change. A transformation. There's nothing transformative about the legal process. It's all about meeting out justice uh, in terms of punishment. And it's thought... I think this is the most prevailing belief human beings have held about themselves in, in all time is that human beings are kind of like animals that you can train like you would train a dog. And if you punish a human being enough, they will reform. It's, it's, that's a long-standing belief that societies have held. And yet anybody with any good sense would know that if they beat their dog enough, their dog is not going to necessarily obey. He's going to cower in terror of another beating or fight back and become vicious. I had a neighbor one time who was very mean to his dogs. He 
he not only beat them, he yelled at them mercilessly. You know, just and they were Dobermans, and Dobermans are very intelligent dogs. And uh, he was doing this one day, and I was standing in my yard. And there's something unfortunate about me that when somebody's abusing something or someone in my presence, I react. I I don't think twice about saying my piece. <laughs> and so I yelled across to him. You stop doing that to your dogs. You can't tell me how to treat these dogs. These dogs need this. I said, well, you don't do it in my presence. <laughs> this this uh, person went home and, and uh, that night, I don't know if it was that night, some night later, he dreamed that he married me. <laughs> he wasn't married at the time. <laughs> and it was hell on earth. <laughs> So it made an unhealthy impression on him, I guess. But this person had been abused. They were passing on the violence they had experienced in childhood to their pet. And it, you know, I think it's that. It's it's our dysfunctional, I don't know if you remember what Jonathan Henderson said a few weeks ago in my uh, ordination service. When he said that we picture God according to our dysfunctions <laughs> as as people, uh, instead of picturing Him as He really is, and I I think that's that's out of which the legal model has developed. The legal legal process has developed as a contrived means to try to simulate what only love and truth can replace our, in terms of our brokenness. So it's the bailing wire we use. Instead, our home is falling apart. Our society is falling apart like an old house. And, and instead of tearing it down and building a new one or completely renovating it, we tie bailing wire around it to hold it together. And, and the, the bailing wire is the, this legal process. Because it, it's a, a, a neater and tidier way, they, uh, they, uh, restorative justice takes longer, it takes more energy, it takes more effort. Uh, it's not as neat and tidy. There's something I just kind of noticed uh, in conjunction with what you were saying about uh, fear and the legal model and justice. Mm-hmm. Um, I just find it interesting comparing or actually contrasting where the focus is on uh, perhaps our legal system versus this model. In the legal system, where's all the focus? It's on the trial, right? It's on the catching. It's on figuring out whether he is guilty or not. Um, Versus in this model, it was a lot more of what was the impact of what you have done uh, on the the victim Mm -hmm. and on the victim's family and on your family. Uh, And uh, one of the things I find (coughs) interesting is you know, if if you put so much focus on the catch, what a prisoner is learning is not the consequences of this crime; it's the consequences of being caught. So it's like the, if the emphasis is on being caught, what you are effectively teaching uh, human beings is to try harder next time. And and stories are legion about people who uh, get caught, and their guilt is only guilt that they got caught. 
if if you were let them off the hook, they'd go right back and do the same thing again without a, a hint of compunction. Yeah. And I mean, we we do have to be careful about overgeneralizing uh, the people who do go to prison. There are people who do a crime and don't do it again. Uh, and there are people who do realize what they've done is wrong in prison. Uh, but I would argue that the majority of the time, because there's so much emphasis on and, and catching him the right way uh, and prosecuting him in in a legal way, uh, since, there's, since there's so much emphasis on the catching process that if you're going to teach someone something, you're really teaching them not to get caught, not to consider what they've done. And I would argue that even the people who in prison recognize fully their responsibility and, and never do it again, that it isn't the legal process that has done the majority of, of that process. It gets out other, other processes that work in their lives. Uh, the legal process might have wakened them up and, and give them a moment of reali- a reality check, so to speak. But what enabled them to do that reality check was not the legal process itself as much as what, how they may have been raised or um, what kind of encounters they had had relationally. Yeah, and uh, Caitlin and I, when, when we had first read this, we were talking about uh, perhaps some of the limitations uh, of... Uh, restorative justice and one thing we kept on coming back to was this couldn't have worked if Connor hadn't recognized what he had done was wrong Mm. if he had pled innocent if we had to take the time to show that he in fact pulled the trigger uh, a lot of this restorative part of restorative justice would have been lost I can give you an actual book that you should read uh, where this was, this kind of thing was done. It was kind of uh, combined, like this was with the legal process. Um, but it was, it was that after apartheid ended in South Africa, they developed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission (TRC), and uh, they brought in victims who had watched their loved ones be slaughtered. And they brought the people who had done ordered the slaughtering, who had, who had participated in the slaughtering. They brought them in one at a time and let them hear the stories of these people. And a, a book was written by a psychologist, an, a South African psychologist, Pumla, and I can't pronounce her last name. It's a very long African name. But um, she visited what was considered the worst I think they called him prime evil. Uh, the worst person in in the whole, so he was the one who ordered so many killings. And she interviewed him in prison at, at length. And um, she actually found herself torn emotionally apart because there was something she want about him that was human still that she wanted to forgive and that there was this other side of him that was so hard and cold and 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 ruthless and cruel um, i don't recall how she resolved i think i think it was unresolved by the end of the book but it's called a human being died that night if you ever get a chance to read it uh it's it's worth a read but this was this was an attempt to bring the the restorative justice process to people who 
had no guilt. They, to them, their regime was right. It was it was lawful. Uh, it was just because the other side won in terms of uh, ending apartheid that they were suddenly viewed as criminals. So it, it's a, it was a powerful book. Uh, she, I don't believe she was a Christian, but she had very high prin- moral principles, and uh, it's it's a powerful read. So that that's a case of, of actually using it. I I what do you think? Do you think the the restorative justice process should be used on a serial killer or a psychopath? I I think of what happened um to a colleague of mine at Walla Walla University. Actually, it didn't happen there. Uh Daryl Bigger taught in the School of Theology at Walla Walla University for many years. I think he still is teaching. And he also has been a chaplain and has done a variety of things as well. His daughter, Sharon, went back to Washington, D.C. to do an internship, I believe, at the General Conference. And the ne- the last, next to the last day, the day before she was to leave, I believe it was, uh, she saw somebody who looked perfectly innocent at, at the supermarket, and, and he said hi. She said hi back. And she went home and didn't realize he was following her. And he broke into her house and attempted to rape her, and she fought back. She fought back so hard that he didn't rape her, but he killed her. And... Dale Bigger and his wife chose to forgive this person. They went to the trial hoping to see some sign of remorse, some sign of guilt. And when they, uh, he said that he was able to forgive him until uh, after after the part of the trial had ended, he was smirking and acting like it was just there was just no sign at all of any remorse he said he nearly lost it but I believe he rallied and continued to forgive him even though there was there was no yeah I was just going to say one of the one of the things that I still have to reconcile is the psychopath with God's moral system that's something I'm still working on uh, especially because I don't know enough um, about psychopathy or sociopathy. But I think at, 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 where, at the point where I am now, it's, it's very complicated and not in a good way. Uh, because you also have to consider, like, so is psychopathy a biological process? Did they choose to be like this? Or... Or were were they so badly abused that their per, their thinking became totally twisted and con- and perverted and and to the point where there's there's no way you can untangle it? And I just if if that is the case, I'm not really sure what to do with that. Yeah, yeah and and what do you do with a pedophile? Because how many pedophiles can be rehabbed? How how many pedophiles actually? Uh, turn around and become transformed. Uh, the biggest problem with both kinds of people, well, it's all three kinds, the sociopath, the psychopath, and the 
pedophile is the inability to admit guilt. Isn't it? Yeah. Until you can admit guilt, there's no healing. Yeah, the 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 character the major characteristic of a of a psychopath is no remorse. Mm-hmm. I do remember and I can't remember whether he's a psychopath or a sociopath. But there was a one of those two uh murderer who was into stalking people and then shooting them. In one of his I don't know if it's Mr. Hyde or Dr. Jekyll moments <laughs> he admitted that he had a very dark and evil side. That's as far as you got with any kind of guilt admission. Um, I've heard a story, I think it was a a railroad worker or something, a totally normal guy, had a great life, but a terrible accident happened in which part of his brain was knocked out. And he miraculously survived, but one of his lobes was missing or something, and... Yeah, okay. And he basically develops, like, I think they call it antisocial personality disorder? Or not quite? Okay. But he lost the ability for moral ability, right? Well, if the frontal lobes are damaged severely enough, you lose moral. The function of the frontal lobe, if we're going to uh, oversimplify, is to stop you from doing something. That's That's the role of the prefrontal cortex right here, is to stop me from trying to kiss a pretty girl I see walk down the street. That's what it does. And, yeah. Uh, and with Phineas Gage, what happened was um, essentially his filters uh, were cut off from his behavior. And so if you know someone did something that ticked him, ticked him off, he blew up. Mm. He wasn't able to moderate the amount of anger that he showed. Or if someone did something that was really funny, he would completely burst out laughing there there was just, there was no moderation in what he would do and it wasn't that he he be, you know he became a stalker and killed people uh it was just that, yeah the, he lost the ability to moderate and control what he felt in in uh, conjunction with what he how he behaved mm-hmm. it's a favorite case of psych yeah, <laughs> yeah. and and so yeah, we could spend a lot of time on this. I'm not sure whether we would find a solution mm. by doing so. Well, one of the th- one of the reasons why psychology students and psychology in general uh, enjoys the story of Phineas Gage so much uh, is it really shows the intimate interplay between biology and psychology. Yeah. Uh, and I think at some point we also have to consider that the fact that our moral capacities are also part of our bodies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so if you destroy or manipulate or, you know, um, if you cut off some part of the body, that gives us the capacity to first off engage in moral reasoning or impulse control. That's also also another characteristic of of psychopathy is poor impulse control. Mm -hmm. Same thing with antisocial personality disorder, by the way. Um, and it's just like if you cut off the biological components that allow for that, it, how then is the person supposed to do that? It's like cutting off someone's arm and saying, "Pick up a cup." You have to attach a, a prosthesis, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but how do you do that on the brain? <laughs> uh, 
Well, I, what I'd like is to read through the rest of these questions. We obviously aren't going to get to them all today, but if there's any question that particularly strikes you, uh, kind of tag it and, and then bring us back to it. What elements in the story fall short of this model and relate more closely to a legal model? What is justice in this process? How would you describe it, and how does it function? Suppose the Grossmeyers had decided on no penalty, only forgiveness. Would that be justice? In what sense? In what sense would it not be justice? Did Connor need to be punished and do time in prison for what he did? Apparently the Grossmeyers thought so. Why did they think so? Do you think so? And if you do, why? If you don't, why not? What kinds of cause-effect relationships took place in the story? Would a more judiciary and penal approach have caused Connor to face what he did more effectively? Why or why we not? I think we have duly talked about that one. Who besides Connor had to face what he did themselves? How did this approach allow them to face themselves? What is forgiveness? Is forgiving someone for my own sake, self-preservation, really forgiveness? If forgiveness is part of love and love is always other-centered, is not forgiveness for the other person. If you were Andy or Kate Grosmer, how would you want to handle this case? Is there anything you would want to do differently? And if so, what and why? If you were Julie or Michael McBride, how would you want this case to be handled? Is there anything you would do differently? And if so, what or why? So, what's your pleasure? So, which question? In, uh, in response to number eight, the what is forgiveness mm -hmm. um, and is not forgiveness for the other person, I think it might be helpful to understand forgiveness as a process mm -hmm. uh, rather than a solitary act. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that, what's, what's the mother's name? Kate Grosmere? Mm -hmm. That's something that she kind of touches on is she's forgiveness is a constant struggle. Uh, and I would say the amount of trauma that was caused by Connor's act, it would make sense for forgiveness to start with the self and then perhaps later on fully branch out to being other-centered. And, and obviously because forgiveness is very experiential. We can't forget to leave out the, the self mm -hmm. in the forgiveness process. Um, and so I, I wouldn't uh, jump to say that uh, this was a selfish forgiveness or it was just for her. Uh, perhaps it was for her at that time. You know, there's a, there's a moral implication in what she says, I think. And that is she could not go the, the alternative to not forgiving was to become hateful and bitter and she could not see herself going that route she did not want her daughter's memory to be forever linked to this terrible act and and to be a victim for all time she so it, it, her her self-preservation was for her moral self-preservation really to avoid the hate and the uh, the um, bitterness that could ensue if she did not forgive. Well, and just I th I think in the second paragraph under the bold in in March, it's the second to the last page, about halfway through. The Grosmere said they didn't forgive Connor for his sake, but for their own. 
Um, everything I feel, I can feel because we forgave Connor, Kate said. Because we could forgive, people can say her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say that is a crucial, if not a first step, it's a crucial step in being able to move beyond uh, well, the self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that that highlights uh, such a characteristic symptom of not forgiving uh, is you are stuck in the sense where whenever someone says her name, you are brought back to that moment. Yeah, I I think you're right. It is a process uh, with the ultimate goal being, I think, to be both personally whole internally, which I think can only happen really through the love of God, and I see that at play in this story. Uh, and how they came to forgive, and then moving in to encompass other people. I personally have found it easier to fully forgive people if I do what Jesus said, that to love our enemies. He ne- Jesus never commanded us to forgive, even though he modeled that at the cross. He did not command us, forgive your enemies. He said, love them. And I can only do that if I allow God to love me and heal the damage that other people do to me. And and the more I've experienced that, the more I've realized how powerful that is and and how um, you become... In, in every situation of trauma like you have in the story, a person is automatically thrown into being sick themselves almost. I mean, it's it's like they're on that trajectory. And they can't they can't stop themselves easily from it. And by coming to love by by embracing the love of God and, and his healing love and, and his uh mutual sorrow with a person in that trauma, uh they then can begin to love the person who caused that trauma. And in that whole process, ultimately, they they preserve themselves from self-destruction, uh, from becoming dysfunctional and, and becoming a person who could maybe do something bad themselves. Any other other questions or or just plain observations? Our time is just about up, but I would like to do number two. What elements in the story fall short of this model and relate more closely to the legal model? Did you notice any? You still have something of the legal process because you have an attorney, a state attorney, I think it was. You have a sentence. Also, the attorney made the ultimate decision. Like the parents said that they wanted about 15 years and... He ulti- he said, "I'll think about it, and, uh, and I'll talk to other people." I he didn't make his own judge or idea right then, and then he pushed it up. I think twenty at uh, ten five years more to twenty years for mm-hmm. the crime. One thing I'm kind of ambivalent about was um, it, when they when they started the conference. Uh, the reporter talks about there was a picture of Anne that the parents could hold up in case they thought that there was something being said that Anne wouldn't like, mm-hmm. and that would silence whoever was talking. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of ambivalent about that. I can understand how that would be useful, but it also seems extremely arbitrary. 
And I, I think that in this case, it seems like it was not abused. It didn't seem like people were just like, I don't want you to talk. Haha. Let's see the picture. But, I mean, it, it was something that just stood out to me as, did we need that with Connor? I could see that being necessary maybe in a case where you're dealing with somebody who's hardened and not willing to admit their guilt. Connor admits it from day one. He turns himself in. He's an easy case uh, for this. But if you were dealing with someone who was hardened and not admitting their guilt, you might need something like that to keep things from going out of control and them getting the control and, and derailing the whole process. But yeah, I think I I think you're right. I think there's a question that legitimately can be raised about that in terms of Connor. Um, as far as the legal process goes, it did seem like the the prosecutor had like this almost cultural burden behind him that demanded some kind of sentence for Connor because he was worried about being perceived as too soft on crime. Yeah. 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 That's well. That's the problem of in in legal theology versus experiential theology. That's one of the charges. Uh, God, your God is too soft on sin. So, yeah, that's that's a charge, and and I countered that by saying to die as the result of one's own choices, and to have nothing but that, no nothing to blame but one's choices. To die as a result of that is far harder a sentence than to have someone kill you because then you have someone else to blame. And it's that that horror of realizing you've done it to yourself and you have nowhere to go. Uh, I think that is is far worse. And I, I think it means that God is very hard on sin, but not on sinners. Sinners are hard on themselves. Well, I would like to come back to the overall question. In terms of theology, how do how does a legal model for atonement and a healing trust model or an experiential model for atonement, how do the, these two models translate in terms of how I treat other people? This thought may come from, you know, my my friend's troubles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things that seems to be the biggest contrast between these two models, especially in terms of when someone has hurt someone else, is the aspect of communication. Uh, it seems a lot with like the restorative justice or the experiential model that we've been talking about, uh, there's definitely a drive to at least get talking, figure out what it was specifically that was the grievance, uh, or what can be done to repair that relationship, uh, as opposed to the legal model, which is based on a kind of appeasement, which is no longer about justice, but on satisfaction of the aggrieved party. And sometimes that satisfaction demands actually more than what was done. Uh, it, it makes me think about, you know, when, when you're a kid and someone hits you and you're like, ow, that really hurt. Well, how hard did I hit you? And then you really hit them hard. Uh, ow, I didn't hit you that hard. Yes, you did. And <laughs> I remember that all throughout elementary, uh, my elementary years. 
but that very much sounds like almost what the legal system sounds like. Mm. Is you need to be punished by the way that I feel. Uh, I, I need to be appeased on this. And of course, doing what you did to me won't appease me because you'll shrug it off. So I would say communication perhaps is a major difference. There's, there's a, an in, a very fascinating book that illustrates these two models very well. It's called Forgiving the Dead Man Walking. I don't know if you've seen the movie Dead Man Walking. Mm. You remember when Helen Brajan came mm. into the campus and talked about Dead Man Walking? There's a, there's a sequel to the story written by Debbie Morris, Forgiving the Dead Man Walking. And she was one of the victims of the of the men who were incarcerated, That one of whom Helen Prejean ministered to. And uh, they they put her in their car, and well, they actually they found her and her boyfriend uh, along the river, forced them at gunpoint into the car, took them to a neighboring state, crossed the border into the woods, and shot her boyfriend in the back of the head, put her in, kept her in the car, and drove and kept driving for two days while they raped her repeatedly in the back seat. And all the whole time, Debbie tried to find some humanity in these two men. She kept trying to draw them out, ask them questions about themselves, uh, and, and in every way tried to minister to them. And it's probably that that saved her life, because they had killed other other women. So they they dropped her off not far from where her uncle lived. She was able to get his help and and then begin life over. It turned out her boyfriend was not killed. She took the officers and paramedics to where he was, and uh, they found him still alive but unconscious, and, and they were able to rehabilitate him, though, because of the brain damage he suffered. He was never the same, and their relationship ended. But uh, she went through just hell afterwards, trying to get her life back together. She became an alcoholic. She became fairly dysfunctional in her life. And then she found God again and let him begin the restorative process in her own, to heal her own damages. And she came to to forgive this person, that had uh, these people that had done this to her. Meanwhile, what, there was another victim who had been killed by them. Similar, probably, situation to hers, but except that it ended tragically. And the parents of this victim went to every execution in the state of Louisiana to try to satisfy their justice. They couldn't get enough, and they would call Debbie up and say, we, you know, there's another execution scheduled. We want you to come witness this with us. Debbie would turn them down. And she ends the book pretty much by saying, you know, she, what she noticed about this, these parents is that they were never satisfied. It was never enough. And she said, we don't sing amazing justice. We sing amazing grace. She said, justice didn't do a thing to heal me, but forgiveness did. So, to me, that's that's the two models working out. The the parents of this girl 
never are satisfied, always going to executions, always lobbying for capital punishment, uh, never, never happy, never can can move on with their lives. They're stuck. And Debbie has moved on to become a successful mother, uh, educator, uh, speaker, public speaker. I would love to see her come to this campus, actually. And she's moved on because she forgave. She moved into the experiential model rather than... And, and truly, uh, given how she treated her perpetrators... Uh, as they were doing these terrible acts, it shows that she was in an experiential mode all along. Um, and that it was God healing her with his love and bringing her back to that that uh, changed everything. I personally believe that the two models of atonement have the capacity to really play out in a rather dramatic way. Because I'm, my real belief is that what we profess to believe about God is what we hope is true. What we really believe about Him is how we treat other people. And I, I think that our real theology is how we treat people. And that that's why these two models, uh, especially to, at the point at which there's opposition between them have the power to to really play out in rather dramatic ways and that some of the, what you see in Revelation about that play out is about those two models Cause, because really the the legal model is, is about power and control and enforcement the restorative justice model or the experiential model is about healing and restoration. And and those are two very different perspectives. It can play out. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we've had the opportunity to move through this process of looking at two models and, and how they work and relate in real life. We pray that um, as we live our lives, that we may move more and more in an experiential direction and understand more fully how you love us and be able to experience that love in our lives and be able to share that with others. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 In Jesus' name.